Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Intrinsic Labs podcast, Reignited. I'm Sharath Jeevan, and the host of the podcast, which is all about how we can reignite our inner drive or intrinsic motivation in key aspects of our lives. And one of the, the banes of our motivation often in our working lives is office politics. Often, many of us, I know certainly myself, have dreaded situations that require office politics before. But in today's session, we have an amazing speaker who's based in South Africa, Nivin Posma, who believes that office politics isn't just a, an evil, or even a necessary evil. It can be actually something that we can engage in meaningfully and, and find motivation from. So I'm super excited to, to hear from her about what her tips are and how we can make our office lives more bearable through understanding her insights and ideas. Welcome, everyone, to Reignited, the Intrinsic Labs podcast. And so delighted to have Nivin Posma as my guest today. And what a day to be recording. We just heard that Joe Biden has won Pennsylvania and a very momentous time in the US election, a big time for politics globally. But today we're going to uh, focus on a, on a kind of different kind of politics, so there will be some parallels we'll explore around politics in the office every day. And Nivin, are they as as vicious as what we've been seeing over the last few days? Can they be, are they more gentle? What, what, are, what are your thoughts as well? Lovely to have you on the show. Thank you. Yeah, and I must say, having looked at your previous guests, I'm delighted to be on the show because it's certainly an illustrious list so far. So thank you. Gosh, could anything be as vicious as the last four years and the things we've seen come out um, of politics? And I hesitate to say just, you know, the US. Certainly we've had our unfair share of drama and disaster in South Africa, and I think the rest of the world's uh, not far behind. So I've been reading some research uh, recently, which just talks about, I think it was in The Economist, yeah, it was, talking about how governments across the world uh, have lost the trust of citizens mm -hmm. and how the trust index and trust barometer has just plummeted. And I think, you know, that's probably a, a function and a feature of a myriad of things. Certainly the dynamics and the personalities, which in my experience seem woefully underprepared and, and woefully underwhelming for the task at hand and the complexity we're all dealing with. And I think more, more of a sense of agency from more people uh, and a rise in civil society and a rise in, in the press highlighting things. Of course, there's also the rise of alternative facts and everyone being entitled mm. to their version of the truth, which just drives a lot of this stuff. So in a nutshell, yeah, you know, ultimately people are people. The way we show up in our best ways, in our best selves and in mm. our worst ways, in our worst selves, are pretty consistent across the world and, in, and across organizations and across spheres. I think the thing with politics is that it's on such a, a public level, it's at such mm. a global scale and the stakes are so high. And so everything that gets, everything that happens in, in politics with a big P gets amplified in terms of attention and awareness mm. because of the impact. I think yeah, all of us have been watching uh, almost in slight uh, amusement over the last few days would probably echo that as well. And I feel like we'll, we'll come back to talk about the political sphere more generally. And I love your, your thoughts on the, these parallels. But I, I know you've recently published a fantastic and, and best-selling book on office politics. So first of all, congratulations. It's fantastic to, to hear. And what inspired that, first of all? I'm just curious. It's an interesting story. A few years ago, a colleague who has subsequently become a friend, who has a very successful leadership development company was looking for someone to lecture two delegates on office politics. And we just happened to be talking and she wondered if I might be interested in it because 
she'd heard plenty of my trials and tribulations. I mean, the successes are, are not worth talking about because those are just on LinkedIn, but the trials and tribulations around mm -hmm. office politics that I had experienced in my career. And so she thought, you know, I could certainly talk from a position, if not of strength, then, then of experience. Mm -hmm. And I remember we go running four times a week and I remember where we were running up which hill which tree I almost crashed into at the mere thought of talking about office politics and reliving some of the dramas and disasters I had gone through. But actually, you know, it's funny how these things happen and this whole idea that you've got to live life forwards, but you can only understand it backwards. There was clearly something in the conversation and something in me that was ready to think about the subject in ways that I never had and never had had to as an executive. And so I went back to her after a few days and I said to her, you know, my visceral reaction of thanks, but no thanks, there's clearly something there that I need to work through. And if I can learn about the subject, then I think I can teach it quite easily. So let me do that. So I spent about two or three months uh, researching as much as I could about office politics and in parallel, really reflecting on my own experience. And like I say, not the highs, but the lows and the frustrations and, and what I might've done differently, what I didn't know and what I didn't know I didn't know. Mm. And so that then morphed into a day long lecture, which I give through a number of organizations in South Africa and overseas, business schools and private companies. And you know, in the three years that I've been giving the lectures, it, it really doesn't matter whether it's graduates who are just starting their career or executives, mm who've been working for 20 years. It doesn't matter whether you're in NGOs or corporates, whether you're male or female. What really struck me was, was how much my experiences and the lessons that I'd learned through the research really resonated with people. And so, you know, comments like, gosh, uh, if I'd known this 20 years ago, my career would have been very different. Comments like, I wish I'd known this stuff 20, 10 years ago. To which I replied, you don't say, I wish I'd known this stuff 10 years ago. One person saying to me with a very pale face, you know, I think you may have just saved my job with some of the things you've made me think about. Your experiences can help other people learn. And so I really wanted an opportunity to put what I lecture about and then more stuff, because there's only so much you can cover in a day, into a book that would reach a far wider audience than I'm personally ever going to be able to. And so a publisher was interested and I'd started the book, but, you know, it kept moving to the bottom of the to-do list. And then, of course, lockdown happened. 2020 must have been a fabulous year for you because one of your intentions was to spend less time on planes. And so suddenly, you know, a whole bunch of work that I had uh, all over the world just yeah. disappeared. In fact, all the work disappeared while everyone reorientated themselves. And so then I was able to use lockdown to really work through the book and think about it and use the, the lectures and what I use in the lectures and the stories that I've heard through the lecturing uh, to write the book. You know, I wish I'd had read this also when I started my career as well. I wish I'd learned this stuff 20 years ago. Just curious, what would your top two or three insights be that really came from the book and, and the research that came from it? So I think there's a couple, Sharath. It's The first is there's this incredibly widespread, incredibly prevalent myth Mm -hmm. that you can either be a good person or you can play office politics. Mm. And so, of course, it's unsurprising that anybody who would like to think of themselves as halfway decent oh. runs a mile at the mere mention of office politics. And it is a complete myth. It is not an either or. You know, I said in a, a conversation I was having some, with somebody the other day, listen, there are some either ors in the world that are immutable. Mm. 
So you either like Marmite or you hate it. That's never going to change. You know, you either are a morning person or you're not. But this either or of politics or decency is, is so mistaken. And I think it's mistaken for a number of reasons, but probably the most important is the fact that we actually all misunderstand what office politics actually are. And so they're not the toxic Machiavellian, destructive, ugly things that we tend to think of when we use the word office politics or work politics. Of course, that's a version of politics. But in fact, the actual definition is entirely neutral and entirely values neutral. It's about the informal, unofficial, behind-the-scenes efforts and activities that go on in all organizations by virtue of us being human and by virtue of us being social creatures. And so the pillars of politics is or are relationships, influence, power, and the perceptions that people have of you. And again, those are completely neutral. But how you use them, how you build them inf informally, in unofficially, and behind the scenes, that can make such a difference to your career. And so I suppose that's the second big thing um, that I learned is I've had a very successful career, one that I'm very proud of and one that I hope to continue for years to come. And yet I can only but ask myself the counterfactual question of what else might I have achieved had I been just a little bit more smart and a little bit more politically intelligent. And if I hadn't seen it as this binary either or, and I think the third thing is this idea that people feel that they can escape politics. If I can just find this one magical team, this one magical environment, you know, politics will disappear and I can just get on with my job. In fact, you know, that's simply not the case. And the, and the sooner people understand that and accept that, the sooner they can start getting smart about how to show up in a way that serves them, is congruent with their values, but positions them in the way that effective politics does. I think when you, you talked about some of the, the, the key areas and, and relationships, influence, and perceptions as well of those P's, and I guess you're playing a bit of a motivation sort of a mirror to that, that they all sound quite what I call extrinsic. They're about what other people think of us and so on as well. I'm just curious to, to think about the relationship piece a little bit and, and go into that a bit more. What do, what do you think it is a, a, that really makes flourishing relationships happen in the world of work? Are there, is that possible or do we always have to see this as sort of a game to be played? I think a lot of people that work, I think that's something yeah, you've got to do to keep the boss happy or my colleague not my back or it's often the very negative frame. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, so I think it's understandable, but I don't think it's right. So I think there are three critical pieces of advice that I've been given through my career and which I make a point of trying to share as often as I can because they made such a profound impact on me. And they all at the heart have, at the heart of them have relationships. So the first one is some of the most important decisions of your career are going to be made when you are not in the room. So who is in the room for you? Yeah, this idea that you're kind of subject to forces outside your control and it's what other people around you, how much they advocate for you. Is that what you mean by that? So I'm, I'm not saying that you are only subject to forces outside of your control. I mean, clearly those forces and how they act for you or against you is a big function of how you choose to show up or choose not to show up. So there is a cause and effect, not always a direct one, not always a linear one. But yes, you know, we have agency, we have a locus of control, which we choose to exercise or not. And we all have a brand, which we choose to develop and build 
or to disregard. Those things then all lead to all kinds of consequences of which relationships and sponsors and uh, support or the lack of it are the effect. So yeah, to think that you have complete agency and that mm. you are a universe of one is a mistake. But similarly, to think that you are only subject to the whims and preferences of other people and that you have no stake in that and no ability to influence that, mm -hmm. it's just as big a mistake. I think like as with most things, it's a both and. So I think understanding that, and I have, I mean, I'm not sure about your career, but I have certainly seen that be true in my career. The decisions that were made about me when I was not in the room, and sometimes they were made in my favor and sometimes they were not. When they were made in my favor, it's because I was being politically smart and I had the relationships and people to count on. And of course, the opposite is true when I was not being politically smart. So I think the second big thing that all of us make is a, is a fairly constant mistake is we treat work like school, right? So we think that if we just put our head down, we get on with things, somebody's going to notice, somebody's gonna say, oh, well done. And they're going to give us an A. And that's not how it works. You know, and maybe in an ideal world, that is how it should work and how it could work in some organizations where people choose to create organizational cultures like that. But in the real world, hard work and talent are not enough. It is actually about people's awareness of those and people's willingness to support and sponsor you. The third piece of advice I got, and gosh, did I have to learn this with a bit of a thump, was Niven, you know, if you have to choose, and you don't always have to choose, but when you have to choose between being effective and being right, choose being effective. And, you know, that was a hard lesson to learn because yeah. I like believing that I'm right. I've got all the facts at my disposal. And clearly I'm in a position of authority and I know what I'm talking about. So clearly I'm right. And technically I may have been right, but being so determined to be right and be seen to be right is not a great way to build relationships and influence and power and perception because you actually just end up alienating people. Mm. So yes, I think at the heart of it, it is about relationships, but which relationships you choose, how you show up in those relationships, how you support those relationships, how you pay those relationships back, yeah. You know, that's all about yourself and, and your own motivation and your own priorities. And you talked about stories that have gone both ways. Is there a story that's been an uplifting story that brings that to life? Oh, yes. I mean, there's plenty. I mean, I, I make sense of the world and I think about my life through stories. So there are plenty. But one that I share in the book because I was so moved by it. Let me share with you again. So... It was a woman in South Africa, very successful businesswoman, enormously successful, in fact. She's been called the Estee Lauder of South Africa because she started up a cosmetics company that pretty much every South African had heard of and a few years ago it was bought out by Avon. So, you know, it was successful on a global level. Anyway, she told me the story about 15 years ago of something that had happened to her, which was profound in terms of relationships and profound on multiple levels, as you'll understand once I've told the story. And so essentially the story started when her son uh, got really ill and she had to choose between running the company, which was effectively like another child, in fact, her first child, and taking care of her son. And, and she simply couldn't, given the nature of what was going on, do both equally effectively. So she decided, look, it's easier to find an interim CEO than it is to find an interim mother. So let me focus on my son, get an interim CEO, let's go from there. And so 
She did that. She would come into the business every week. She would get updates and management reports, go through the figures, and then leave until the next week. So this continued for a number of months. And the one day she'd come in for the meeting. She was on her way out to her car when one of the cleaning ladies at her company came up to her. And the way she explained it, the head office, the manufacturing, the distribution, the warehousing was all on one big campus. And so her cleaning lady worked in one part of the campus. It came up to her having waited for her to leave the meeting to go to her car and said to her, Miss Veronica, I would like you to come see something. And Veronica said to me, you know, her first thought was, gosh, I really don't have time. And she said, thank heavens she didn't show that thought or express it, because of course it would have been incredibly rude, but then she would have missed out on what came next. And what came next was her cleaning lady going around the corner into the warehousing part of the campus. And Veronica said, as she walked into the, camp, into the warehouse, she just saw piles and piles of inventory from the floor to the ceiling. And she said she took one look at this and thought, what is going on? There's no ways we should be sitting on this amount of stock, first of all. And second of all, what I'm seeing with my own eyes, there's no relation to the spreadsheets I've just been going through. So hang on a second. Anyway, what ended up uh, being understood and discovered was that the person who was in charge of running the business for her in her absence was, was really mismanaging it to the most awful extent and degree. And she had to step back in. She had to remortgage uh, her properties. She had to raise a whole bunch of other debt and equity and whatever. But she did that. She turned the company um, around again. And like I say, sold it a few years later. Mm. And so when she told me the story, she concluded by saying, so the moral of the story for me, Niven, is that you never know mm. where your next best piece of advice is going to come from. Right. Right. That, that cleaning lady saved my company. And of course, she's absolutely right. But I said to her as well, and I suppose speaking to the themes of the other speakers you've had on the podcast, she's absolutely right. But she also, as a CEO, first of all, created a culture where a cleaning lady could and did look up from her job to think, hold on, uh, something's not right here. And second of all, created a culture in an organization where that cleaning lady came to the CEO and that CEO listened. So None of that happened in a management meeting. It was all informal, unofficial relationships and support. And the perception that a cleaning lady had of the CEO that she would be approachable and would care. And it was not a misplaced perception. So, yeah, I think, you know, often we see politics and influence and power and perception as only moving upwards. Yeah. In fact, they move laterally. They move downwards. We get them from below us as much as we give it. Upwards. Well, a really powerful story. It speaks a lot, I think, to the as you said, the culture and everything that had been created there. And we we talk a lot in sort of motivation thinking about purpose. And I, I often define purpose very simply as can we see our work and how it helps and serves others at the core. And it feels like there's a really strong parallel that idea of relationship that people understand how your work is serving someone else. That feels a very positive, almost a a very intrinsic uh, driver. I think uh, what I'm hearing is reframing this idea of office politics. And this is about building genuine, quite deep relationships at every level of the organization, if I've heard you right there as well. Yeah, so I think it is that. It's also about, it doesn't have to be deep relationships, just effective relationships. Yes. And you know, effective relationships are ones where you give and take. It's not mm -hmm. just a one-way extraction. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think to build on all of your work around intrinsic motivation, 
I mean, when I started my consultancy a few years ago, I sat with a colleague whose opinion I respect enormously. And he asked me, okay, so what are you going to do? And I started to list a whole bunch of services. He's like, not interested in that just yet. What I'm more interested in is what problem are you going to solve? You know, what problem are you going to set yourself up to solve? And it was fascinating because in that instant of being asked the question, which I'd never been asked before, so I'd never consciously thought about it or formulated an answer, I suddenly knew what the answer was. And I thought, gosh, this is what I've done through my whole career as an executive and CEO and, and manager. Now I'm going to do it as a, as a consultant. And so I said, the problem I exist to solve is the two sets of data that are seemingly irreconcilable, but which we need to reconcile. And so the one set of data is also one that you referenced on your website, the Gallup uh, engagement survey, which globally just shows that the level of disengagement is appalling um, across organizations, across countries. And of course, that's a human tragedy, but it's a financial disaster as well when you've just got presenteeism that's more prevalent than actual engagement. So I said, you know, the Gallup survey and those results and plenty others like it all speak to the same thing. So that's one set of uncontested data. The other bit of data, and I first read about this in Fred Kaufman's book, uh, Conscious Business, mm -hmm. and then I've read more and more research on it, says that, in fact, the majority of adults globally, and the number is hovering at about 80% in most studies, the majority of adults, if they were to become financially independent, you know, make a, a fabulous investment, win the lotto, whatever, such that they did not need to work, would still want to work. And so how do we reconcile the fact that, you know, so many people are so disengaged and just trying to get through the day mm -hmm. with the fact that as human beings, we are wired to want to work. Yeah. We are wired to want to contribute and give expression to what matters to us and our talents through our work. Mm -hmm. I mean, through other things as well, volunteering mm -hmm. in our family and our community. But work is the primary opportunity for most of us to yeah. really do stuff that matters to us in the world. And yet, again, you know, as, as your work illustrates, as other speakers have spoken about, there's something in how we have set up organizations in terms of how we define leadership, in terms of what we measure, what we reward, that completely mitigates against this idea of, I'm here to contribute my fullest self. And, and again, Fred Kaufman uses a great phrase, and I think a lot of it boils down to, we wanna get the most out of people, not the best out of them or the best for them. And of course, there's not just somebody else's responsibility. You've got to figure it out for yourself. But gosh, I think the way we've set up organizations is severely less than optimal. And there's really interesting, and I think just an example, I've been doing some work in the homelessness prevention sector of the UK, helping local governments and also charities. I think it's such an important time of COVID, of course, we've had a huge spike in this for obvious reasons. And one of the things that's so interesting is that there's a role in many local authorities um, called a homeless support officer. They go out, they reach out, they try and take people, build trust, help them with various aspects of care, eventually bring them off uh, the streets. But many of those people don't see a lot of purpose in their role. And, and, it, and that relationship you talked about, it's so powerful between themselves and the client or the, the homeless person. But I think we've created systems and, and organizations, you know, targets, all kinds of things that almost dehumanize those relationships you talked about so powerfully. Mm -hmm. mm. And I think it's a really powerful insight that if we go into work really thinking about those flourishing human relationships is really, really core to the work itself. It's not, if I'm hearing you right, not, it's not an adjunct, it's not a sort of sideshow. That is no. absolutely part of our core work as well in that regard, is it? 
Is oh, absolutely. No, no, absolutely. And it's fascinating that you say that, you know, that, that loss of purpose, even in work that is so clearly and mm. profoundly valuable and meaningful. Mm. And certainly when I've worked at private sector companies, you know, and I've worked in the public sector, I've worked in the private sector and for NGOs, mm. there is often this tendency to think that, okay, well, people who are working in NGOs are so clearly saving the world that they must jump out of bed every day because, you know, I'm doing something worthwhile. Whereas somebody in a corporate has clearly sold their soul and is just there for the paycheck. And I fought against that so violently. I said, that is absolute nonsense. And it's an absolute cop-out, okay? Because not everybody can or should be working in NGOs. And you don't understand how difficult it is and how soulless, and to use your words, dehumanizing, a lot of systems can be. And that happens in NGOs as well. And it, in fact, as you talk about it, it reminds me of a woman I met a few years ago at a bank. And it was a Friday afternoon. I needed to interview her about the work that she did. It was three o'clock. And trust me, by three o'clock on Friday afternoon, I am switching off. So I really had to find my intrinsic motivation to go have this interview. Yeah. And she sat in the bowels of this really ugly building in a really ugly part of Johannesburg. And I, I went down to meet her and interview her. And I mean, I practically skipped out of that interview after the hour because she wow. was so full of energy mm. and, and so inspiring. Just as I met her, you know, even before I started talking to her and I said to her, okay, so let's start with the basics. I've got your name. Just give me your actual job title. And she gave me some long job title, but essentially her job and her whole department's job was to repossess things repossess houses, repossess cars, you know, things that had been financed through the bank. So I looked at her and my face dropped as she told me this. And I said, good grief, isn't that incredibly difficult and incredibly demotivating? I mean, how do you come into work every day to phone people to say, we're about to repossess your property? And she looked at me with absolute astonishment that I had missed something really fundamental. So she said, but that's not what I do. So I thought, gosh, you know, we're only a minute into this interview and I've already misunderstood the most important thing, which is what she does. I said, no, but, but that is what you said you did. She said, no, 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 that's not what we do. She said, what we do is we stop people becoming homeless. We stop people getting divorced because if we can have the conversation with them soon enough mm -hmm. that we can restructure the loan, we can make an alternative plan, yeah. anything's possible. Yeah. You know, and I looked at her and I was just astonished because I sat there and I thought, People in an NGO yeah. helping someone get off the street can't feel that sense of motivation yeah. and somebody sitting in the bowels of this hideous building ostensibly on the surface just repossessing things saw it as anything but. And what I love about story is, is that the idea of the relationship between that, that, that client, the customer and the, the manager was so strong or soft and it's, yeah. you, know, you don't think in that way at all. So that idea I think of yeah. keeping I don't know if almost this idea of weak ties that you, you may not be, you know, you may not be your best friend, you're not going to work to necessarily you know create the best friendships in your life but to create genuine human relationships at every level yes. is such a powerful thing and actually my work has been in education over the last nine years and we found that in countries like India and East Africa for example that actually systems do so much better when there are those relationships at different levels and there's trust and a sense of a common purpose as well so I think that idea is really powerful and I want to go to second area you talked about, which is this idea of office politics not being something you can sort of avoid doing in, in a way, right? It's, it's part of what we do. And it correlates to the, the idea we think a lot about mastery. What do you need to master in work? And as you said, often the, the head down, let's get the technical, let's get the report done, the spreadsheet. I'm just wondering, why do you think we don't think about this as a part of our mastery at work? Is it, is it something we're just yeah. 
wired to do or we're educated? What's, what's happening there? I mean, that's such an interesting question. I mean, I, I suppose a couple of things. I think we are, our formative experience when it comes to achievement and acknowledgement is school. And so especially if you've done well at school, well, you have a muscle memory around my work speaking for itself. And that muscle memory is hard to, to let go of. I think there's also a moral judgment that my work should speak for itself. And so people uh, get very, very distressed at the thought that it doesn't, that there's more to it than just my technical ability, because surely that's all that there should be. And I think the fact that Rosabeth Moss Cantor from Harvard Business School said it really well, and, but the tragedy she, is she said it over 30 years ago and it's still valid today, is that you know, the subject of power and politics, in her words, they're the last dirty secret of organizations. So they are not things that, in inverted commas, nice people talk about, and they are certainly not things that anyone gets taught. And yet they are the complete bedrock of organizations, of systems, of human behavior, power and politics and influence and relationships. And so I think why we don't talk about them is partly because it's uncomfortable and partly because Jeffrey Pfeffer from Stanford wrote a fabulous book called Leadership BS, where he says, we don't look at the empirical reality of organizations. We look at the empirical results like Gallup's disengagement survey, but the reality of organizations is that they are power structures. They are about a whole bunch of things that are the complete opposite of what leadership training and leadership books and, and inspirational things pose it, which is, you know, do all these wonderful things. And, and in fact, that's not how organizations run. And yet being faced with that reality is something people don't want to know because they want to be inspired about what leadership is and could be and should be. And I am by no means a cynic. I mean, I'm, I'm an idealist and I intend to remain an idealist, but I'm also a pragmatist in terms of what are the things that make organizations run? Mm -hmm. Organizations of all types. And what are the immutable truths of human behavior and human motivation? Mm -hmm. And so stop looking at inspirational stories, look at empirical evidence of what's going on and, and work with that. Yeah, I think what I like about um, that approach is that it's really thinking more about how can we go in with a positive lens? So it's a fact of life. It's part of our mastery at work. We want to, it's just part of parcel of what we do. And that's how we are effective. Back to, back to your the quote from earlier you mentioned, but how we learn to master that. And I think this idea of using relationships, the other part, back to the purpose idea that if you can have those meaningful relationships, maybe different levels of depth, but across an organization, that feels an easy way to stomach some of this because otherwise I think you know, many of us are for me I think in my career I was very scared for many years about this idea of office politics as well but this somehow feels a bit more accessible. I, I think you're absolutely right and you know what I sometimes find in lectures is no matter what I say about good politics being as possible and in fact as ne incredibly necessary mm. uh, far more necessary than the bad politics that that we are telling ourselves a single story about something that's much more nuanced, that this is really critical to your career, your health, the success of people who are relying on you. As much as I say all of that and people are convinced, there is still a, a kind of hardwired visceral reaction to the idea of politics because it's so ingrained that it's unpleasant and negative. And so I say to people, well, then if you don't like the word politics and you only have the single story and can't change it about it being negative, well, then for heaven's sake, call it whatever you want. 
but it is at its heart about the relationships, the power, the influence, and the perceptions mm -hmm. that make you more effective, yeah. make the people who count on you able to be effective, make the organization more effective. Yeah. And so call it whatever you want. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. if it is easier to stomach to say, I'm going out to systematically, strategically build relationships of yeah. mutual value, to manage my brand, to yeah. influence the perceptions that people have of me, whatever it is, yeah. do it. But you're doing the same thing. Yeah. yeah. No, I think it's a really nice way of just sort of feeling more comfortable. And just to, you know, just give it a, a story myself. I was talking to a, the head of a very successful entrepreneurship accelerator in the, in the UK and she's been looking at some research around, you know, women and men in the workforce and why do sometimes men progress faster and had nothing to do with technical skills. But what she was saying is that a lot of times the women in the workforce do feel it's very much keep your head down, do good work. Men are, for whatever reason, more comfortable or seem to be more comfortable going out and promoting themselves. That's the, the, the sort of negative way of thinking. The other way you could look at it is building positive relationships across the organization. So I think if we don't make this part of the mastery mix in organization, we make it to make it explicit. I know you've been running those workshops, Nevin. It feels we're, we're sort of almost allowing some people's talents to be, to be harnessed and nurtured, not others. And I think that's such a powerful mm -hmm. idea that this could help to, to make it available for everyone, really, in that, in that way. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, clearly the, the subject of gender differences and gender disparities is, is the subject not just for another podcast, but for another 50. But <laughs> yeah, I mean... The, the idea of confidence and competence not being directly correlated, the idea that we take our cue from people's confidence in their own abilities being absolutely uh, irrefutable, and the fact that there's a wealth of evidence that says women see their abilities very differently to men, so, you know, and, and consequently show up. But there was a, a very interesting piece of research that Cheryl Sandberg quotes in her book, Lean In, and it's from Hewlett Packard, but she says, and in my experience, it would be true of most companies because it resonates with women when I mention this to them. Hewlett Packard, men would apply for open positions if they thought they met 60% of the criteria. You know, and that's if they thought, doesn't mean they did, but they thought they did. Yeah, yeah. Whereas women would only apply and sometimes not even apply, even if they met 100%. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's a whole cumulative story here about perception of yourself, perception of value, projection of that self and of that value, and then people taking you at face value. Yeah. There's also a whole bunch of stuff around if women generally do better at school and at university than men. Yeah. So they qualify in greater numbers. They qualify with higher um, percentages and grades. Yeah. That then just reinforces the idea in many women that this is the path to success, right? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. this is what I did well at school. This is what I did well at university. So let's just keep doing more of the same. And the rules are very different. Yeah, I'm again another podcast, but I could, we could talk for length on how we need to change our school systems to to inculcate, inculcate these kind of ideas much earlier. Because otherwise, we are, I think, really leading kids up the garden path. And I've seen quite strong data even in countries like India, which are very fast growing. That academic success doesn't, it's very, the, the correlations with life success careers, it, it, they're very weak, actually, much weaker than we would like to admit. So Absolutely. we've got to be more in the school school environment. Another area to look at, I mean, is this idea of power. And I think you mentioned, it's a kind of word, again, a dirty word we don't like to use often. And I think that very powerful insight you said about most of what's going to happen in my life or your life will happen outside the rooms where directly. And I'm just wondering how you reconcile this idea that you know, we can change things, we can make a difference at work, but we're also subject to these larger forces and people around us. And how do you, how do you square that? I mean, how do you sort of avoid getting 
freaked out and thinking, God, what's the point of, you know, trying to chart my own destiny if that's what the world's going to be like? No, I don't see any contradiction or pointlessness in it at all. Knowing that other people will have a whole bunch of influence, what am I going to do to build the right relationships, to have them say the things I would hope them to say so that I can be achieving what I would like to because they know it and they're going to argue and support for me. I mean, if I think about the amount of things that I've been able to do in my career purely because of other people's support and opening the doors. I mean, that's the flip side of the relationships, right? And, and the upside of the relationships is th there's a fraction of what I would have been able to do in my career if other people hadn't been on my side, if other people hadn't been advocating for me and telling me about opportunities I would never have known about otherwise. And so I think to, to just feel that you're helpless in the face of it, as opposed to hold on, if this is a fact, how do I want to use this, not only to my advantage, like I say, but to the advantage of people who count on me, the advantage of my team, of my stakeholders, because it is a fact. And in being more effective and in having people who are on my side, I can pay that back in a multiple of ways for other people as well. Mm. And so, yeah, I suppose because I've had both experiences where, you know, decisions one in particular decision was made to fire me when I was not in the room, but that's another whole story. And that was incredibly unpleasant. Right. But I've had, in, in contrast, dozens of experiences where people have been in the room when I wasn't even aware they were having a discussion about me because I hadn't seen some of them for years. And lo and behold, this opportunity, this information comes my way. So it can go both ways. I think how I show up and what I choose to do and the brand I've chosen to build and the work that I've chosen to deliver has contributed to all of it. And for the most part, contributed incredibly positively. What I'm taking away and sort of thinking about is that the stronger our relationships, the more we can keep our autonomy intact, our locus of control intact, because in a way we can persuade others, the course we're taking gives us more freedom, more space, more um, room to maneuver, all of those things. And if that trust is there, People will, will trust us. As we conclude the podcast, we first of all, just learned so much over this and so fascinating. I think there's, there's this whole question in with our politicians. We don't trust them a lot, right? We, we've hemmed them in with social media, you know, Twitter, TV, you know, every possible corruption probe, all of this stuff. And we seem to be in this trap of they've now beholden to special interest because that dialogue between citizens and our politicians, they don't have that autonomy, that room. And it, it leads them to some quite dysfunctional behaviors that we've I've seen over the last few days. How does this apply to, to politics with a big P? Hmm. Well, I suppose part of the challenge for them being charitable, when I have to tell you many times when I read the news, I feel anything but. Part of the challenge is, you know, they're needing to play to an audience that has a very short attention span. And they're doing it in, in increments of, of four years maximum. I mean, if you're a congressman or congresswoman in the States is two years. So, I mean, that's barely enough time to get anything started. And so I think that idea that we get the leaders we deserve is painful and as 
difficult as that is to swallow is absolutely true in many levels, I think, because how many of us play a part in our local community, in our local politics? How many of us educate ourselves on the party's manifestos? We read the soundbites and the headlines in the newspapers that we support. And so we look for confirming evidence of what we've already decided to be true, which is I like this person no matter what they do. And this person is just unsalvageable no matter what they do. And so I think yeah, I mean, certainly in South Africa, politics has been a path to personal enrichment and the idea of serving people has long since gone out the window in many instances. And it's very difficult to serve people when you're driving in a convoy um, of blue light brigades that open the, the way for you on busy highways. But yeah, power used and misused and abused is such a flipping tragedy, given the scale of the things that we are up against. But I think the idea that any one party, any one politician, any one country can solve it is so outdated. And yet we cling to it because we are always looking for a hero and a savior and a simple answer in the face of overwhelming complexity. Really powerful. I'm just wondering that back to your point of relationships, I was just thinking perhaps voters who vote, uh, vote of Mr. Trump this time, for example, and so on. And there was a sense, I think, in many parts of the U.S. in the heartland that, that you know, some mainstream parties had, had sort of not listened to them. That relationship had been severed, right? They're not, and, you know, we saw that in Brexit in the U.K. and many of the populist movements around the world, this idea that that relationship isn't there. And what that may almost do is, is, is compound some of these issues there as well. And I'm, I'm sort of wondering whether there's a way to, you know, for, for a decent politician to, to want to build that trust back, build that relationship back. So they have that space, that autonomy you talked about to and them to do what they need to do and pursue a longer term agenda and do what's right as well. Mm. But it feels like that, you know, some of this might be at the core of how we can reform our politics as well. I'm just thinking, you know, how can we apply this to a, a country level as well? Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you say that because I think it was about four or five weeks ago, there was a very interesting article in the FT Weekend where they were talking about the correlation between the undisputed rise of loneliness all around the world. And, you know, they were particularly looking at the UK, but the amount of people of all ages who felt increasingly lonely. And so if your only connection with the rest of the world is then through social media, how populism, extremism becomes a magnet for people who are lonely because they are suddenly able to feel connected and validated. And of course, then that becomes a vicious cycle that just reinforces it because the more alienated you are in your group, the less relationships you have with people around you in real life. And so the more lonely you become. And I mean, that was just the most fascinating thing. And of course, the two billion alternate realities that Facebook can position, if you've watched The Social Dilemma, it's like having two billion different Wikipedia entries for the same fact. Yeah. We'll tell you whatever you want to know, whatever version of the truth works for you. And so this fact that this idea that we're living in a post-truth society, we're living in an increasingly alienated society, and this link between loneliness and social media and the rise of populism, gosh, I mean, it's enough to make your hair stand on end. Yeah, no, it's, it's scary stuff, but I, but I think I'd, I'd like to close today, I think, with a note of real optimism, because I, I went and I, I must admit, I've hated office politics most of my, my life when I was in an organization, a leading organization, there was always a thing that I... I sort of felt always a huge sense of trepidation about. But I think what this has helped me reframe, at least in my own mental model, is that it's really part of work and it's actually it can be a very fulfilling part of work. That story of the cleaner just really resonates in my mind about 
you know, those relationships at all levels, whether deep um, or weak, but they're there and they're human and they're meaningful. That's part of, of finding our purpose at work. It's find, part of helping us find that autonomy to change things. But I think we need to make that, that building of relationships really part of what we develop in our mastery at work. It can't be a hidden thing that a few people, perhaps more men, figure out uh, just because they're predisposed that way. But it's just transparently part of how we think about modern work as well and, and, the, and the office as well. So, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm coming out of this with a huge uh, sense of optimism. This, this can be taught. It can be nurtured. I, I'd love to see it developed in the school system, but, but if, that's a longer term thing. But even right now in the world of work and yeah, I just want to say thank you for the, for the conversation. Where can we find the book? So it is on Amazon. You can get it there in a Kindle version or in a hard copy. If you don't want to buy the entire book, on my website, I have a couple of videos uh, of some nuggets that I think are useful. And then a workbook that goes along with the videos. Just some self-assessment exercises and some reflection exercises that I, I think are quite useful. Um, I'm sure a lot of our listeners would, would love that. And I think it can feel like a very scary topic, but I, what I felt today was there's a way of, of coming into it and re approaching this in a much more positive uh, way, actually a way that could really help us develop more motivation at work as well. Thank Absolutely. You. A positive, effective, healthy uh, approach. It can make all the difference uh, in your career. Thanks, Devin. Uh, I'd love to talk, we'll have to talk again in, in, in the future. Lovely. Thank you.